0: Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Brian LaFalle, Global Head Customer Success Strategic Programs at Google. In this episode, we talked about how Brian is navigating customer retention post the Google acquisition, how both Google and Looker benefited from joining forces, and how they managed and prepared their existing customers for the transition. We also discussed Looker's explosive growth since joining Google, and why Brian threw out the notion of customer journey maps and replaced it with a behavior mapping exercise. Brian also shares the one thing that he learned about churn and retention that he had a different perspective on before joining Google. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. not different- just gun for revenue in the door. This is churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth.
1: How do you build a habit forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. If you need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing
0: strategies, tactics and ideas, brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode.
1: Hey Brian, welcome to the show. Hey Andrew, thanks for having me back. It's a
0: pleasure for the listeners. Brian is the Global Head of Customer Success Strategic Programs at Google and founder of the Customer Success Field Guide. Prior to Google, Brian held the same role at Looker where he helped shape the customer success practice from scratch over the 5 years he spent there before their acquisition by Google for $2.6 billion. We previously hosted Brian on the show at the time of the acquisition about a year ago, and we were lucky to have him back today to share his experience navigating customer attention post the acquisition. So my first question to you, Brian, is what's it like working remotely at Google from a company famous for the amazing office environments? Uh, have they bought the same experience remote work?
1: So it's quite interesting because the Looker team, when we were acquired, I think we might have been the last batch of employees that was onboarded in person. So we actually got to go in, we were Mountain View campus and wherever people were in the world, they went to their regional Google offices and we got to have our Noogler hats, little twirling hats that everybody gets. So We got to go through that kind of really special onboarding experience, and we're all very fortunate for that because I think it it set us up for a good foundation to go from there. And just, I think it was about a week later, the country shut down. And Google has been an incredible company to, to work for. They've been incredibly accommodating in the resources that they've been providing all remote employees since then. For instance, they've been giving budget for everybody to work from home, expensing certain things that you're uh, doing at the office, internet, uh, electricity, things like that. And so it's been an incredible experience. Recently, we actually just completed our our annual kickoff that was done purely remotely. And within the Google Cloud segment, that encompasses somewhere north of 25,000 employees. And it was done with recorded sessions and breakouts and networking. And you have to just imagine the creativity that comes into Google. They did an excellent job in facilitating a a, a wonderful kind of digital kickoff event.
0: Yeah. 25,000 people to facilitate networking. Sounds intimidating, especially online as well.
1: Uh, Yeah. Were these events
0: typically held in person before?
1: They were. So you could imagine these big, massive kind of uh, kickoff events. We did the last one in Las Vegas. And so if you were a part of the Google cloud team in December of 2019, going into January, 2020, they rented out basically all of Las Vegas. they rented out the biggest conference halls. I think at that point, Google cloud was probably about 20,000 employees strong. And it is the fastest growing segment, both in terms of revenue growth and employee count within Google. It's, yeah. it's a major investment that, that Google is making as one of their big bets.
0: And what does it entail exactly? So what is Google Cloud?
1: Yeah, Google Cloud is all of the, the services and infrastructure and storage and compute. It's all of the services that Google, Google runs uh, lots of products for billions of users every year. Uh, you think about Gmail or Maps or uh, Google Payments, any of these number of services. And so underlying all of these services that are serving a billion plus users every year is infrastructure. And Google Cloud a couple of years back said, we've basically built these infrastructure components to serve our own needs. YouTube, for instance, how do we serve billions of users and, and, and tens of billions of views each and every month? And knowing that they had built a very unique kind of tech stack, they started to say, we can actually start to provide this as a service and that's where they started to open up uh, Google Cloud as a division within Google. I'm not exactly clear when it was built as a division within Google, but it goes back a couple of years, and it encompasses both the infrastructure, which is very kind of consumption-oriented as a service, and then you've got the SaaS components, which are the things like Looker, which is the division I'm in, Chronicle, which is their security, Apigee, which is their API management, and then Workspace, which is all of Google Meet, Google Drive, all of those products that is in kind of the collaboration suite for Google. And so all in, like I said, it's about 25,000 employees and growing very quickly.
0: And it must be a super interesting time as well, like coming over from Looker. What size was the team at that point when you were acquired? How many were you in Looker?
1: Looker was about a thousand employees. And in, in terms of you know ARR, we were only about 200 or so million in annual recurring revenue. Now, that's a lot of growth that I'd seen. When I joined, we had 2 million of ARR. So yep. to see it grow to that point was incredible. However, when you think about Google Cloud, it is a multi-billion dollar business. And yep. we're one small drop in a very large pond.
0: What would you say then has been like the biggest benefit now for Looker joining uh, Google Cloud?
1: Yeah. The the key benefits, I think, go both ways. I think Looker brings a very interesting and unique product to the Google Cloud portfolio of products. Specifically, it complements the BigQuery database platform amazingly well. If if a company or a Google Cloud customer decides to centralize all of their company's data and make the investment in a cloud data warehouse like BigQuery, Looker becomes the kind of front end that users can take advantage of that database. And so I think that the acquisition made sense on a product level, just 10 times out of 10. On the culture front, I think that Looker brought this, if you look at our G2 crowds just online or anywhere on the web, you'll see that we have amazing customer satisfaction scores and we lead with customer empathy. And so while I think it made sense from a product perspective, Google has this very kind of user first culture and that meshed very well with with Google and Looker. And so we were able to bring that kind of empathy into Google Cloud, and there's a lot of synergies there. And so I think it made sense both on the culture front, but also on the product front.
0: Nice. And making this move then as well, I think at the time could imagine there must have been a little bit of worry as well, like specifically like for customers coming maybe from different data stacks, not using Google, like there must've been concerns. Like, what does this mean for me now using Looker and maybe I'm on something like AWS or how did you manage the transition period with these customers and with customers in general? What is the communication like with customers? Like how did you prep them for what was about to happen?
1: Yeah, there was a period of time that we had to kind of plan for that communication. When Google signed the intent to acquire us, we already were spinning up Tiger Teams to focus on communications to existing customers. Again, we are very customer first and customer forward. And so we wanted to be as open and honest and direct with our customers as possible. And leading up to the acquisition, we were preaching the number of unique databases that we were supporting. We wanted to be cloud agnostic. And that still stands true today. We still support Amazon's Redshift or Microsoft's Azure or just a MySQL database that you're running somewhere else on-prem. It doesn't matter to us. And I think that this coordinated very nicely with Google's announcement last year at their next conference. And they, they announced this new platform called Anthos, which is meant to be a multi-cloud, cloud kind of agnostic approach to running loads on lots of different clouds. And it, it helped that Google was preaching this messaging of kind of an open cloud that any customer could use any cloud that they want. And Looker also had that approach and that philosophy. And so as we got into the kind of the specifics of communications to customers, we decided to be upfront and we said, look, we are not going to stop supporting any of these databases that we currently support. We support 50 plus dialects in the data space. And that is going to continue. And we reiterated the message. You can imagine there were some larger customers, though, that had a you know heavy investment in AWS and a heavy investment in Looker. And there was some tension. And we needed to meet that with kind of executive presence to say, look, like we're invested here. And we had our executives at the time, early 2020, we were gonna send them on planes to go meet with these customers in person, couldn't do that. So the next best alternative was to have Zoom calls with all of our our largest customers that might have been on a different platform, Microsoft, Amazon, et cetera.
0: And just to ease them into to let them know like nothing's really gonna change. You got the same experience.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: What would you say has changed for your customers, though, since joining? Is there any sort of things that have got better or maybe worse as a result of the acquisition?
1: I'd like to think that the entire experience has gotten better. The the benefit of being the Looker department within Google is you get vast amounts of resources that we didn't previously have as a private company. You can think about Google Cloud is known for its learning tracks and its learning journeys and its certification program. And I think that Google Cloud has actually done one of the best jobs in the market about getting people certified. We've got millions of people across the globe that are getting certified on Google Cloud products. And you can take all of that knowledge and that mastery in the education and learning and development space, and you now have all of those resources as a looker division. And so that allows us to improve our certification program, our learning journeys, but that it also extends into the product as well. So where we previously were loosely partners with Google Cloud and loosely partnered with AWS, now that we're within the Google ecosystem, we're able to iterate and, and build cloud, Google Cloud native APIs directly into Looker that makes it easier. So for instance, natural language processing. You think about it with your Google, Google Home, right? There's an entire team that knows how to take natural language and translate it into actual kind of results or search queries. You could take that exact same type of approach and apply it to Looker for instance, so if I wanted to be able to say, hey, with a Google Home that's in your office, show me today's sales results, it would it would be able to interpret that, that language and then turn it into an actual query that would show up on your dashboards. And so okay. I think it allows us to move uh, much more quickly. You could also imagine if you're trying to plot map data, Google Maps is one of the best you know, APIs in the world. So yeah. we're able to improve the product and up-level the product while also offering lots of different components to the Looker experience. That we didn't previously have as a private company so learning journeys for instance
0: yeah and one of the things i think we chatted about before the show was that you've actually seen explosive growth since joining google yeah. and how has that been like for you and the team as well i think i can imagine as well like being introduced to thousands of new customers and trying to keep up and scale the processes maybe that you had in place for them previously what's that journey been like now since joining uh google
1: yeah, I, I, we were seeing you know double digit growth um, quarter over quarter for new logo acquisition prior to to Google, and to give a little bit of context, the Looker sales team was probably about 500 strong. So we had about a thousand employees. Half of that was about was sales. When you get into the Google Cloud ecosystem, though, the the sales org within Google Cloud is tens of thousands strong, globally in every region, every geo, you know, every different segment. And you can imagine if every one of those account executives sells just one looker deal, just one, that would 10X our customer base. And so we we noticed that we saw this massive kind of wave of new customers that was coming in. And that's part of the reason why I stepped over into the programs is to help understand what are the cracks in our current customer process that are going to be exacerbated when we start adding just all of these new logos. And the, the, the interesting and unique challenge is that we've gone from double-digit growth up to triple-digit growth quarter on quarter, which is insane. You never see this type of acceleration. Yeah. I think that we're also riding the momentum from just cloud adoption as we everybody's moved to the digital world in the business life and, and otherwise. But we had to basically rethink how we serve customers because we were both simultaneously going up market. We were being exposed to larger deals we'd never seen in, in size before. But then we also were being exposed to other Google Cloud customers that were on the smaller SMB digital native front. And that, that led to that kind of triple digit growth. And we needed to really rethink how we go to market with customer success. And we're still working through it, but we're really leading with digital success first. Layering in CSMs where it absolutely makes sense. And we're trying to embellish and improve the, co- the customer experience that way. Yeah,
0: that must be pretty intense as well, trying to figure that all out. In the past, you were a little bit more hands on, would you say, a more high touch team? And now you're making a switch more to low touch. And unlike it's only where it's really necessary, introducing CSM, is that the?
1: Yeah. I think the way that we're thinking about it is leading with digital. We understand that having digital channels improves the overall customer experience. It doesn't take away from the CSM experience, but I think that where it makes sense, either customers that have paid for success or they have some sort of really complex use case that's atypical of Looker and there's a need or a customer is growing very rapidly. We want to be more selective in how we apply CSM resourcing. And it has really forced us to be critical of our segmentation because previously it might've just said, hey, 20 new customers, that goes to a CSM in this new region, all right, off you go. But I think that this sort of growth has forced us to really think about what value can the CSM add in that particular customer engagement. And if, if the actual needs of the customer can be met through digital channels and they can move more quickly, than saying have a weekly meeting with a CSM. All they need maybe are some docs and some webinars and some videos and things like that. And they can move to to implement Looker. We don't wanna get in their way. And so it's forced us to rethink how we do segmentation.
0: Nice. And then the thing as well, like I'm thinking about this then would be the team and the structure and who's on board. And I think maybe in this new future then, digital first, the skill set required and the team within the CSM may need to change. but I also assume maybe since the rapid growth you're still going to need the volume of CSM managers to be able to support the growth but then also be hiring more digital first like customer success, I think is is that the plan or?
1: Yeah, roughly. We have a, a 50 plus CSMs on the team. and yeah. I think that what we're doing is we're reallocating many of those CSMs to the larger and larger uh, deals that we're seeing come through with GCP but then that also forces us to go on the lower end of the spectrum for the digital native type companies that are SMB likely under 100k in spend annually those are the customers that we need to kind of service with digital channels and that is forcing us to you know actually look at what are the other roles that we need to fill marketing p- potentially or copywriting or yep. graphics and digital Those are the kinds of roles that we need to bolster up on the customer success team. And in in many instances, we actually have resources within other departments. So it's forcing us to really think about our partnerships with other teams. So strengthening the relationship we have with marketing, for instance, to really ensure that we can run strong webinars that are adding value to customers or work with our brand team about how we put out new infographics or PDFs or one-pagers. That is really how we're bolstering our skills across the team. And then repurposing a lot of our CSMs to focus on the really large strategic customer implementations.
0: And then focusing because they're bringing in marketing, lifecycle marketing, getting campaigns running, like a lot of automation behind the scenes. And that's also like interesting, I think, that moving more in this direction. And you said if they can get on with it, just getting out of their way, do it. And I think that's great. The one thing, though, like in my mind, just thinking through this as well and how it plays out is that... When you have a lot more hands-on experience, like with CSM and having that personal touch, you can gauge where the customer's at and know, have a better idea if they're going to be successful or not. I know as well, like in a previous episode where we had Eleanor Dauphin from Segment, one of the interesting things uh, when we chatted with her was actually adding friction to onboarding increased retention for them because what they realized is customers that just went on and got on with their thing ended up setting maybe the tool up in a not an ideal way so then they couldn't get the best access to the service and that ended up uh, like causing churn at uh, the other end so what how are you thinking about measuring engagement at this stage from a CSM perspective to know when you should maybe step in or shouldn't as a team and when to allocate resources to an account
1: Yeah, this speaks to an initiative that's been underway since January of 2020. So when I stepped into the program's role, we decided to completely rethink the way that we were doing customer journey mapping. We threw out the notion of customer journey maps. What we had seen and what we had internally was the customer journey map was something that was very internally facing. Deal closes, handoff to a CSM kickoff. It's all the things that we care about. And it wasn't focused on the customer. And it also was not data-driven whatsoever. And these were triggered events that happened manually. And we decided to throw that model completely out. And we said, let's instead start with a behavior mapping exercise. And we actually took inspiration from our product team about this. How do users navigate through the product? So we got a cross-functional working team together at our kickoff last year in Q1 of 2020. And this cross-functional working team, customer marketing, customer success, product marketing, support, professional services. And we decided to think through what are the actual user behaviors that a, a customer needs to exhibit in order to be successful in order for them to re- renew? What does that behavior journey look like? And this behavior mapping exercise is something that it's, it doesn't look like a customer journey map because there's two things that make it unique. The first is these behaviors are time-bound. So we understand in the first month or in the second month, we would expect X, Y, and Z behaviors to be exhibited in the product. And the second thing is all of these behaviors are quantifiable, and that allows us to scale. That allows us to look at these customer behaviors over time and see, hey, these customers have not connected their database in the first week, or they have not started issuing Git commits against their LookML model, for instance, in the first month. And those are early indicators of a customer that's going off the rails very early. And that entire motion allowed us to say, now that we have a a line in the sand as to what a good customer looks like and what the behavior map looks like over time, we can develop digital channels to influence those behaviors. But if those digital channels don't resonate, which they don't always do, right? Some customers do need to have that one-to-one human experience to be inspired to actually drive action within their company. That's where we can get CSMs involved. And so we lead with the digital channels and all of the campaign development that goes out to influence these behaviors, knowing that not every channel will resonate with every user or every company. And that's where we get CSMs involved. And yeah, it's a new model for us, but I think it's helping us scale because it, we completely rethought our journey mapping and completely pivoted over to behavior mapping instead.
0: Yeah, I like as well as the shift in focus from, like you mentioned, all of the activities that are important to you versus actually what's important to the customer and being able to map that out. The thing is all interesting. You mentioned like the cross-functional team, like marketing and supports and so forth. And I think in the quantifiable aspect of it, because I think always sometimes like we can misread signals as well without understanding the behaviors behind them. So like a good example is support tickets can typically be seen as a negative aspect, but Sometimes that can really just indicate that somebody's actually just trying to get on with things and get moving, and this is why they're reaching out to support. So, having this cross-functional team, I think, it really allows you to see the signals. And I see you smiling as well. What have I? What question or what points have I triggered with
1: you? So, it's actually interesting. One of the key behaviors that we would expect to see in the second month of a customer's behavior map with us is using support. Yeah, and we've done the research and the, the and we've had our analyst team work through what does retention look like for customers that actually engage our support team as a sign of engagement from that brand to Looker versus those that are just dark and quiet. And support is actually a stronger indicator for retention. So yeah. we want to drive them to our support channels. And we this puts a lot of work and onus on our support team to be flawless in their execution and be very helpful. However, Our support team is world-class. Again, go on G2 Crowds, look at our CSAT, look at our support scores. People rave about their in-app chat support that they receive. And it's something that I think makes us unique. So we use it as a value proposition. If a customer is not using support, they're missing out on a key aspect of the license that they're paying for. And so we actually want to push people to using to support, because we realized Looker is a, is, is a enterprise BI tool. It can be complex, right? Yeah. And so we want to offer them help where it makes sense. And so that is actually something in participating with a cross-functional working group, the support team showed that insight and they said, look, like we want people talking to us. And it was actually super interesting because then we said, all right, awesome. We are going to now incorporate that in our digital channels. In our webinar kickoffs, we're going to mention the support channels. In our email campaigns, same thing. And all of these different motions drive people to start engaging with our support channel, taking advantage of the value they're receiving from support and ideally unlocking additional value from the platform.
0: That's awesome. I love that as well because I think it's like, A lot of these things, sometimes we think counterintuitively with them, like, oh, it's a bad experience for support. But actually, like, in this case, like, it's a bit more of a technical product. It's really a good signal that if somebody is reaching out to support, they're actively trying to uh, embed the service or work on the product. So it's a good strong signal for engagement and a sign of a healthy customer, actually. Next question then, quickly. What's one thing that you've learned since acquisition about churn or retention that you perhaps, like, had a different perspective on before joining Google?
1: I'm going to give two. The the first is qualitative data matters. Google is a very, both internally and externally with their customers, they are a very feedback oriented culture. The perf cycle or performance cycle that, that Google runs for all of its employees is world class, right? Other companies have done case studies on it. Similarly, we actually run a CSAT for our CSMs. We will send a survey to our key champions asking the customer about working with their CSM. And all of that qualitative data is stored, it's analyzed, and it's incorporated into how that CSM can improve. And we try to think about feedback as a gift. We try to think about this person is taking time out of their day to respond back to us and really help us be better. So let's listen to them. And so going into Google, I think that was one of the changes that I I was really appreciative of because I think too frequently, especially you can think about Google, billions of users, they're just very quantitative. And that's not the case. And we actually pay for additional research firms to come in and analyze net promoter score across all of the cloud products. So qualitative data is critical to feedback and growth. And and then the second thing I just mentioned is that I I think you have to test your your own biases. When we started with these behavior mapping exercises, we had some ideas, some hypotheses about what behaviors we thought were the best attributes or characteristics of customers that go on to renew and expand many of those were proven wrong. And we had to test those assumptions. And by having the cross functional working team together, we said, look, these are all the behaviors we think make up a good customer in their first six months. And then they go on to renew and expand. We handed that problem to our internal analytics team and said, now we need to go verify. Does connecting a database in the first month actually lead to higher retention? And we did that for every one of the behaviors. And you have to do that. But I think it is a great place to start to say, look, if you have lots of different qualitative perspectives across customer success and product and marketing and support and professional services, and you get all these brilliant people together, you come up with a lot of different hypotheses that you can test, but testing needs to happen. Because otherwise, like you said, you could be trying to drive customers towards a behavior that may not actually impact revenue retention that much down the line
0: yeah absolutely i really like as well the the point on qualitative feedback and focus on uh, speaking to customers specifically as well, coming from like a company like Looker that uh, builds uh, BI services for analytics and data, and I think you, it's right you, you can't really look at the what without the why or the why without the what. I think, and that's where the qualitative and quantitative side comes in. And uh, to your point as well that you're making now, like you can come up with hypotheses, you can even get feedback from customers, and that's uh, part of it. And then you can go back to validate data or vice versa, like see something in the data speak to customers validate why is it happening you see something's happening but having those answers will allow you to build like a much better behavior map will allow you to build better products and services and ultimately deliver more value to the customers super interesting i asked this question last time but i have to ask it because i ask every guest every time hypothetical scenario join a new company churner attention is not doing great 90 days to make an impact and fix things what would you do with your time in the first 90 days if anything has changed since the last time we spoke
1: yeah so so i think my answer is going to stay the same i I think i'm going to lean back on the message that i gave about risk management understanding the reasons why customers leave and analyzing the data behind it i I also the one thing i might change though is the time frame and previously when i gave my response i was saying you should analyze all the data available to you understand and categorize your reasons for risk try to address those that's a lengthy process. And that might be something that takes course over the maybe three or four quarters. But in 90 days, if you truly wanna have an impact on churn, I would categorize what are the customers that are high risk, mid risk, and no risk. And if you're mid or high risk, I would have executives on a plane or in a Zoom meeting with those customers almost immediately. And you'd be very surprised the show of force that you bring to a customer with an executive And align executive relationships, that can have a big impact on churn and retention. So if I were to say now, of course, that's not a long term fix, you still need to fix those systemic issues over time. And I think that's where my first answer uh, speaks to. But if we had 90 days, I would say I remember Jay Nathan over at Higher Logic, he and uh, and Jeff challenged themselves to see, I think it was speak to 100 customers in 100 days. Yeah. And that's the sort of thing that can have a broad impact because you'd be surprised bringing in an executive into a meeting, showing your commitment to the partnership with an executive there and, and br- building the bridges there. That can save a, an immediate turn. It really can.
0: Yep. At the end of the day, we're just people behind uh, the software and uh, building those connections, empathizing, like that's going to win you back the customers. And I think having that close touch, showing that importance that you giving to the customer will give, you, give them... You the benefit of the doubt as well, and maybe give you that exactly. chance to fix things and make things work. Yeah, very cool. Actually, I was gonna end here, but I had one last question for you. Maybe you want to let us know a little bit about a customer success field guide as well. I saw that as well pop up on LinkedIn recently. Uh, what is it like? Why should people be aware of it as well?
1: Yeah, so, so customer success field guide is a side project I had started under the the nudging from my 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 management coach. And for the longest time I've been doing advising in customer success for a number of different channels with Redpoint, point first round capital, now Google ventures and capital G. And I, I think that the perspective that I had in customer success, I've run support departments, I've run account management departments, most recently built and founded customer success at Looker from an employee of one up to 50 plus people, $250 million in ARR. So that journey is unique. And I'm the first person to admit that is something that does not happen too frequently in a career, to see that sort of exit to Google. And so I really wanted to be able to share my experiences and my knowledge, whatever I could, that might be helpful to other CS leaders and CSMs themselves, that might be helpful. And my, my management coach said, but you should just start writing about this because I was getting lots of similar questions from all of the companies that I was advising. And so I decided to start writing about it and I'm sharing all of my customer success, war stories, the things I, I did or, or didn't do and the lessons and uh, the learnings. And most recently, we've started to do an interview series that are super short, digestible interviews with CS leaders in the industry in a super you know, digestible format, no more than you know, five, eight minutes to read the whole interview. And so, yeah, looking to build that out and share my knowledge. And hopefully it's helpful to other people in the, the CS community out there.
0: Awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely add that in the show notes. If you want to check that out, it'll be available on churn.fm and you can check the, that out. So what is the URL as well that they can access it?
1: Customersuccessfieldguide.com.
0: There we go. Cool. It's been a pleasure having you today. Thanks very much, Brian, for joining. Like I wish you best of luck now going forward in 2021. And obviously I know uh, you're working on plans for a new house and renovating. So I hope that all goes well for you and you move in pretty soon, so.
1: Appreciate it, Andrew. Thanks again. Cheers. Thanks.
0: And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you are able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.